0: Now we're going to turn to First Kings 15. We'll start in verse 25. And we'll read through 16, verse 20. First Kings 15, 25 to 16, verse 20. You can find that starting on page 552 in the Pew Bible. And before we read the Word of the Lord together, let's ask for His blessing on it. Indeed, Lord, we ask for Your blessing that your word might go out and not return void today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 15, starting in verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Baasha, son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam, anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all, according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. As for the other events of Nadab's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in Tirzah. And he reigned twenty-four years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanani, against Baasha. I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel. But you walked in the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to provoke me to anger by their sins. So I am about to consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Dogs will eat those belonging to Baasha who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. As for the other events of Baasha's reign, what he did, and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah, his son, succeeded him as king. Moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Baasha in his house because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger by the things he did and becoming like the house of Jeroboam and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became king of Israel and he reigned in Tirzah two years. Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots plotted against him elah was in Tirzah at the time getting drunk in the home of arzah the man in charge of the palace at tirzah zimri came in struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of asa king of judah then he succeeded him as king as soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne he killed off Baasha's whole family he did not spare a single male whether relative or friend So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Baasha in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Baasha through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins Baasha and his son Elah had committed, and it caused Israel to commit so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Elah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? In the twenty-seventh year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Tirzah seven days. The army was encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Amri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day there in the camp. Then Amri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon and laid siege to Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. As for the other events of Zimri's reign and the rebellion he carried out, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? You know, this... These pages read like the 9 o'clock news. So-and-so killed so-and-so, and and this people over here are being massacred by that people over there, and this building burned down, and and maybe in some ways it's boring. But people stay up late every night to watch the news and hear stories just like this. You know, on on the television there's intrigue, there's drama, and there's just enough violence to keep everybody captivated until time for the next commercial break. But it really, it really seems depressing. It's one story after another of, of bad news, and so it is here in ancient Israel. This is like the nine o'clock news of ancient Israel. You have one bad story after another, after another. But I, I hope that as we get into the, the nitty gritty of the dark days of ancient Israel, I hope that that you will trust me that As we get into this, we will find hope even here. And we will find hope even here because we will find Jesus even here. And wherever you can find Jesus, you can find hope. So we begin with Nadab. Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. That makes Nadab the second king of Israel. And Nadab becomes king after his father had died. And not surprisingly, he's just like his father. He keeps all the same policies as his father had, and he's an idolater just like his father. And I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're going to hear this same theme over and over and over and over again. And it's the theme of, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So Nadab commits the same sins as his father had committed, like Father like son, but Nadab is not long for the throne of Israel. He only reigns for two years. And that doesn't even mean two 24 hour, or 20, uh, 20 not only, sorry, it doesn't mean two 12 month years. It means just parts of two years. So if a king became king in August, of course they didn't have August in ancient Israel, but if a king became king in August and died in May of the next year, they would still say he reigned for two years. So he reigns just for parts of two years. And we we see that come out in the very next part because it says that he became king in the second year of Asa and he died in the third year of Asa. So he, he reigns for a short time, even shorter than it really seems on the surface. He reigns for just short parts of two different years. And then Nadab dies, and he dies not of natural causes. He is assassinated. Basha, who appears to be an army commander of some sort, he, be, he becomes covetous of the throne. And so he decides that he's going to go out and he's going, to, he's going to kill Nadab in an attempt to become king himself. He leads a coup and it's successful. Nadab is out laying siege to a Philistine town and while he's there leading this siege out with the armies, Basha comes and he kills him but basha is not content just to kill nadab he goes out and kills his entire family and the reason for that politically is very easy to see if 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 nadab and jeroboam have no descendants there's no one to claim the throne so basha claims the throne for himself kills off any challenger to the throne and establishes his his dynasty as a secure and legitimate dynasty but this is exactly what the lord had promised the Lord had made Jeroboam king. and The Lord had told Jeroboam, Stay faithful to me and you'll have a dynasty. Don't and you won't. And so he didn't. And the Lord had sent the prophet Ahijah back to Jeroboam. And the prophet had said this, You have done evil above all who are before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. So the Lord had made that promise, and the Lord keeps that promise. The Lord keeps his word, whether for better or worse. So Baasha kills off all of Jeroboam's family, but he does not kill off Jeroboam's gods. Jeroboam's gene pool is gone, but the spirit of Jeroboam continues to live on because Baasha continues to lead the people in worship to these false gods. Now Baasha reigns for 24 years, which is very long particularly as the kings of the northern kingdom are concerned. But right in the midst of his right in the midst of his reign, this prophet Jehu comes and confronts Bashan, he basically says, look, I made you king. You, you wiped out all the family of Jeroboam. No longer do you have a threat to the throne. You've become the king of my people, but you continued worshiping Jeroboam's gods. Therefore, exactly what happened to Jeroboam is going to happen to you. And the Lord goes out and keeps that promise. So an identical thing happens to Baasha's son as happened to Jeroboam's son elah becomes king instead of being a wise king instead of being a righteous king he gets to be to the throne he's a fool and he's a drunkard In one of his drunken stupors uh, another another claimant to the throne zimri comes in he wants to be king he does the same thing basha had done he kills elah and basha's son and heir is dead but not only that but Zimri goes one step farther. He not only kills all of Baasha's descendants, but even kills all of his friends. Zimri is particularly bloodthirsty. And so, just like with Jeroboam, his dynasty ends. Baasha does the same thing and his dynasty ends. The Lord keeps his word, whether for better or for worse. But Zimri is even shorter for the throne. He goes and he cuts down Elah and he expects that just like with Baasha, the army is going to rally to him and he will become king and he will reign. But he was desperately wrong because as soon as the army hears that Zimri has become king, They proclaim a different man to be king. They proclaim Amri to be king. And the the army marches to the capital city and lays siege to it. They leave the Philistine town. They were attacking untouched. They, They march now to the capital of their own city. They lay siege to it. And Zimri realizes that he's toast. He realizes that there's no hope for him, he has no army, all he has is some walls, the army's going to come in and he's going to die. So he decides instead of giving Amri the satisfaction of killing him, he's just going to burn the palace down around himself, and so that's what he does. He burns the palace down around himself. Interestingly, though I don't think surprisingly, archaeologists have discovered, not in the too distant past, that there was a major rebuilding project on the highest point of the city of Tirzah at exactly this time in history. So what the scripture claims is being borne out by those studies that go on even in our own day. So Amri becomes king, and he's important enough to leave for himself, so we'll look at him next week, Lord willing. But notice something here. Zemri reigns for seven days. Seven days. That's a week. Seven days ago, we were here. Seven days from now, Lord willing, we'll be here again. Seven days is not a very long time. So he only reigns for seven days. But even though he only reigns for seven days, the Spirit-inspired author says this, So he died because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in the sin he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. And that seems like a rather harsh judgment, doesn't it? I mean, the, the guy is king for seven days. That's a very small sample size. Like, like how, can, how can the Lord, after just seven days, know the religious policies of this new king? How can he know that he's going to keep Jeroboam's gods? How can he know that he's not going to be a better king than the last one? How can we possibly make this kind of judgment on a guy who's only lived as king for seven days? But the Lord doesn't care if you've been king for seven days or seven years. If you don't declare war on the idols on day one, you've been an unfaithful king. And so the Lord lays his judgment on Zimri, and Zimri pays the penalty for his sin. You see, God is holier and more merciful than we realize. And that's born out here. So that's the story. Now what do we make of it? Again, what do we make of this 9 o'clock news of ancient Israel with all this bad news and he killed his family and he killed his family and all the idolatry, the, the fires, suicide? How do, how do we make sense of all of it? First of all, where is God? Where is God? I mean, These are His people. This is the people of Israel. These are descendants of Jacob, right? These are sons of Joseph, the beloved Joseph, Levi. Where is God in the midst of all this happening to his own people? Well, He's right there, isn't he? He's right there. Jeroboam's dynasty ends according to the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to Basha, right in the middle of the story. The word of the Lord comes to Basha. And then his dynasty ends, according to the word of the Lord. God is right here in the middle of this ugly, nasty story. He is right here. And even he's here in grace seems a strange thing to say about a passage like this, that God is here in grace. But he is here in grace. Isn't that what the prophet implicitly offers Bashan? He comes to him in the middle of his reign, and he gives him this judgment. But in every prophetic word, there is a call to repent. Repent, O king. Turn back to the Lord. And the prophet comes to Bashan, not after he's dead, but when he still has life to live, the prophet comes. The prophet comes while he's still king. It's not too late to put away the idols. It's not too late to take off your royal robes and put on the sackcloth and sit in the ashes and weep and wail over your sin than to get up and to get rid of it. It's not too late for Baasha. The prophet comes and condemns his sin, but in the middle of the condemnation, there is an implied call to repent. And we see this exact same thing happens with even a worse king over in Second Chronicles. You get into 2 Chronicles and you find Manasseh. The wicked, evil, nasty, no good, child-sacrificing, God-hating king. Manasseh is as bad as it gets in the kings of Israel and Judah. And a prophet comes to him as well. Read this with me in 2 Chronicles 33 starting in verse 9. Manasseh led led, led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's really saying something. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled him greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, Manasseh built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Basha didn't have anything on Manasseh. Manasseh was as bad as it gets, but when the Lord came to him in his distress and in his idolatry, he humbled himself, he prayed, got rid of all the idols, and he restored the people to right worship. The Lord comes to Baasha in his distress with an offer of grace. And just because Baasha doesn't take it doesn't mean that it's not there. And so the Lord is here in the middle of the story in grace, but what else? What else do we learn about ourselves? What else do we learn about God from this story, from the 9 o'clock news? These verses teach us that sin is boring. It's the same thing over and over again, isn't it? You turn on the news at night, it's the same stories, just different people in different places. Different people maybe are getting massacred this year than last, but there's still turmoil. different person got shot in the city, but somebody still got shot. A fire burned, but just a different building. It's a fire. There's nothing new in it. There's nothing nothing new. There's nothing novel. There's nothing exciting or particularly Different about sin. It just repeats itself over and over. And so it is in this passage. The names of the kings are different, but the sins are all the same. They're all idolaters. They're all rebels against God. They're all fools. They're all breakers of the sixth commandment. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 135, says the duties required... In the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others. These guys break that command in different ways, but they all break it. They all do the same things. Because sin is boring. No sin you or I commit is any different just ugly, boring, nasty, repetitive breaking of God's good and gracious commands. What the Lord says in Ecclesiastes is true. There's nothing new under the sun. And we can scoff at these kings, but can't you see yourself just a little bit in here? I hope we're not to the same degree. Hope you're not burning houses down around yourself or slaughtering entire families, right? But just a little bit. Can you see that the cycle of sin that exists in these passages somewhat mirrors cycles of sin you see in your own life? Perhaps in your own home, your own family. If you can't, it's probably true of you that you think you're more godly than you really are. I really appreciated what Paul Tripp had to say. I've been reading through his devotional book, New Morning Mercies. That's Paul Tripp who's going to be the speaker at the webinar for the parenting couple weeks. He said this, we simply tend to see ourselves as more godly than we are. If you can't see yourself here, you probably think you're more godly than you are. Because we minimize our sin, seeing ourselves as righteous. We don't Cry out for and run after the rescuing and transforming grace that is ours as the children of God. We have boring, ugly, nasty, old sin. Nothing you do is new. Are you a liar? The devil lied in Eden. Are you a murderer? Cain lied or Cain murdered just outside of Eden. Are you a drunk? Noah's done that before you. Are you a trickster? Jacob got that before you. Are you proud? Joseph got there before you. Do you have sexual sins? Shoot, half the guys in the Old Testament did that before you did. It's Just ugly, nasty sin. But here's the good news. That God is good enough and gracious enough to come into an ugly, nasty, sinful situation and use it for His good and for yours. That God is not too weak not too impotent to come into your life and use it for good. Isn't that exactly what, isn't that exactly what he does all throughout history? I, I think a, a scholar, C.E.B. Cranfield, says it very, very well. The fact that God turns the wrath of man to his praise, not excuse the wrath of man. God doesn't excuse sin. God doesn't excuse him, but he can use it. You look at what Jesus says about Judas. In Mark 14, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him. This is God's using it. God predicting it. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. God doesn't excuse the sin of Judas, but He certainly did use it. And the same is true of Paul. God doesn't excuse Paul's rampant hatred and murder against the early church. But He sure did use it to give us the clearest picture of His grace that the world has ever seen. And God doesn't excuse your sin. But He sure can use it to show you just how deep His love for you is. That when you look in the mirror and you see yourself for the sinner you are, and you recognize that God still loves you, you see that God is holier and more merciful than you had ever realized. Isn't that the good news? You have boring and ugly sin and you are guilty and dirty before God that God sees your sin, that God hates your sin more than you do and God doesn't hate you. Quite the opposite. God loves you. And God comes into your life and He comes into that nasty cycle of sin and He plants the cross right in the middle of it. He says, I will break this cycle of sin. And I will reclaim this sinner for myself by my power with my Son's cross. And by my grace. Just like Basha, we've received the word of the Lord. But we've received far more than he did. Basha received the word of the Lord, but we have heard of how God forgives sin. We have heard not just from prophets, we have heard from his Son of how he forgives the sins of his people that He forgives the sins of His people through the crucified Son. You see, your sin goes round and round and round and round and round until you are willing to do something about it. And then when you are willing to do something about it, perhaps you try yourself. And it still goes round and round and round. And it goes around and around and around until you take it and you fling it at the cross and you say, I can't do it. I need you to do it. And God does it. We know by His grace how He forgives sin. See, there was no forgiveness for these kings. But there is great forgiveness for us. You don't have to watch your life go up in flames around you like Zimri. You don't have to die a dumb drunk like Elah. You don't have to leave behind you a legacy of destruction and despair like Jeroboam and Baasha. You can live and be free with Jesus. These kings had no hope. These kings had no hope. They died, and they will face the judgment but not so for us. We have a perfect hope. So Paul says in Romans 8, he says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings and or that we may also share In his glory. These kings had sin, And we have sinned. The difference between us and them isn't in us. The difference between us and them is in Christ. They were kings. Who didn't belong to the king of kings. We are ordinary folk who belong to the king of kings. They died in disgrace. And we die in hope. They will be raised to the judgment. And we will be raised to eternal life. This passage is bad news for some. It's bad news for the proud. It's bad news for those who will cling to their sin dine it, like these kings. But this passage is good news for some. It's good news for the humble. And it's good news for those who will cling with unrelenting humility to the sin cycle crushing cross of Jesus Christ. So let this passage be good news for you. Let's pray. Father, we read through your word, we come to passages like this one, there seems to be so little good news. Perhaps the best thing we can do is simply have a grateful heart. unlike these kings you have seen fit to change our hearts that unlike King Baasha you have caused us to hear your word and to listen and to obey and we thank you that you have the power by your son and your spirit To break the grip of sin upon us. To make us holy. To sanctify us across the course of our lives. And one day, to raise us from death itself. And to give us a perfect righteousness. We are not the king. We ought not to try even to sit on the throne of our own lives. But we are your children and brothers and sisters of the King, co-heirs together with Christ. What a great mercy you have given us, not only that we should be your servants, but that we should be your sons and daughters. And we will not be like the sons of these kings, but we shall be sons who live forever. Thank you for this most glorious hope and for the joy that it brings to us. Let me give you praise in the name of your Son, through whom all this is possible. Amen.